Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza, here with Evan Leespiritu. Evan is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley's Department of Rhetoric. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. As a part of your doctoral research, you've done research on the Vietnamese refugee diaspora. And as part of that, you've visited Vietnamese Israeli communities that currently reside in Israel and studied the history of this community post-1975. There are several hundred Vietnamese Israeli citizens living there right now in a country of over 8 million. So how did they come to be citizens of Israel? Thank you so much for your question. Um, I mean, I think it's a very interesting history. And part of the reason that people don't really know about this community yet is because it's actually very small. So as you mentioned, there's only several hundred of them now. Um, And in terms of the initial migration, Israel granted... Uh, asylum and then citizenship to 369 refugees Mm. from 1977 to 1979. So over the course of actually three waves of asylum seekers. So the first wave has a very interesting story. So on June 6, 1977, a group of 66 Vietnamese escaped from Vietnam on boat. So this is sort of part of the sort of post-1975, after the Vietnam War, a lot of the refugees were fleeing uh, by boat. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they were sort of floating on the South China Sea for four days and lots of ships sort of passed them. And usually they get picked up by, you know, a particular international ship eventually. In this case, um, they were picked up by an Israeli cargo ship, Yuvali, and the ship tried to drop them up at different uh, refugee camps in different places in Southeast Asia and Asia. Mm. So they went to Taiwan and Japan and Hong Kong, but all of these places actually refused to accept this group Mm. of 66 refugees. So... After that, um, newly elected prime minister, Menachem Begin, decided as his first official act of prime minister of Israel, he decided to actually absorb these Vietnamese refugees and take them to Israel. Wow. So he said, you know, he sympathized with the Vietnamese refugees because their plight, you know, really for him evoked memories of the Jews fleeing Nazi Germany and that they were being denied entry into other countries. There was a rhetoric of sort of a personal investment for this Jewish nation to sort of reach out and empathize with these Vietnamese refugees who were also fleeing by boat. This was the first time actually that Israel has received and absorbed a party of non-Jewish refugees. So it's a very exceptional case within Israeli asylum policy. And Israel normally gives no aid, sort of resettlement aid to non-Jewish immigrants But actually, again, there was another exception. The Vietnamese were going to receive actually the same aid offered to Jewish newcomers. So Israel promised this group of Vietnamese refugees jobs, housing, lessons in Hebrew, and even citizenship after five years of naturalization, even though, like I said, they were not Jewish. So this sort of leads to then the second and third wave of refugees that come in 1979. Mm -hmm. So... You know, the initial sort of case of the 66 Vietnamese refugees were seen as a very successful absorption, actually, into Israel. So the second wave was in sort of January 1979. Again, you sort of had a case of a rusty boat, uh, Tung An. And this was marooned actually this time in Manila Bay. So this sort of left, you know, over 2,000 refugees stranded. And Israel again sort of stepped in and they decided to absorb 102 of these refugees. So 15 families came to Israel and they were resettled in the agricultural valley of Afula. 
The third weight of refugees is actually quite different. And this is an interesting case as well, because instead of the other two cases in which you had refugees sort of picked up by boat, Mm -hmm. this refugee population was actually hand selected. Mm. Um, So you had, you know, a sort of quota of Israel deciding to accept 200 more Vietnamese refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you had an ambassador who sort of went around to the different refugee camps in Southeast Asia and decide which ones were eligible that Israel wanted to bring in. And here I think you sort of see Israel having preferences of who is actually coming to their country. Um, So, for example, there were some sort of discriminations based on hierarchies of ethnicity, class um, and sexuality. So, for example, if you read sort of Israeli state archive documents, these ambassadors will say that they wanted refugees of ethnic Chinese origin. um, So not ethnic Vietnamese origin or not people from Cambodia or Laos. Um, They were privileging sort of large nuclear families, not Mm -hmm. anybody who was an orphan or a widow necessarily. Mm -hmm. So overall, you know, I think that this is a very sort of exceptional case within Israel's history. Um, You know, not only were the Vietnamese the first non-Jewish refugees to be taken into the country and granted citizenship. um, But actually since then, in the decades since that case, um, it's been quite an exception within Israeli asylum policy for Israel to offer asylum and citizenship to people who are non-Jewish. That's really fascinating. In explaining this process of selecting this this third wave of Vietnamese Israelis, what are the processes of racialization that the state employed and how do those carry through in the lives of Vietnamese Israelis since then? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, so the underlying question is why was the Vietnamese session exception within sort of Israel asylum policy, Mm. right? Um, I mean, I think you see today, for example, that people from Sudan and Eritrea and Syria are trying to gain asylum in Israel in very large numbers. Um, And the way that the Vietnamese case comes up is very interesting um, because Israel more likely than not will deny asylum to contemporary asylum seekers. I see. However, they will do a sort of flip rhetorical move where whenever they get backlash um, for their sort of very strict asylum policies, they will say, oh, wait, well, please refer to this case of the Vietnamese refugees. We were actually, you know, this is a very benevolent sort of example within our history where we did sort of reach out to refugees. Um, So, you know, part of that, I think, is that they sort of Vietnamese refugees are sort of racialized in a particular way as sort of explaining or exemplifying Israel's self-narrative as a sort of multicultural Western democracy, Mm. um, as a humanitarian democracy Uh that is willing to offer um, asylum to people in need. So this narrative, um, I think, though, is sort of papers over one, again, Israel's sort of denial of asylum to contemporary asylum seekers, um, but also it denies the sort of history of displacement of Palestinians upon which sort of Israel was founded as a state and sort of continues um, to sort of displace and treat Palestinians as second class citizens within the borders of Israel, but also in the sort of occupied territories. How do the ways that Israel racializes Vietnamese Israelis differ from the way that it racializes Palestinians and Palestinian citizens of Israel? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to sort of answer that question, there's sort of two 
loci that I want to address. One is how this sort of state racializes them. Mm -hmm. And two is how they sort of are racialized in sort of everyday interactions Mm. on the street. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So as I mentioned, I think in terms of the state, you know, the state really racializes Palestinians as the ultimate other, as the ultimate enemy. Um, And I think largely in comparing Vietnamese Israelis as um, respectively less of a threat to the country, you know, this was one reason that the Vietnamese Israelis could then be safely absorbed into Israel without sort of threatening um, the Jewish foundations or sort of a Jewish demographic majority. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that, you know, sort of implicit comparison that's happening. In terms of how Vietnamese Israelis are sort of racialized in terms of everyday interactions in contemporary Israel, you actually have to look at another sort of case or context that there are a lot of domestic workers um, and temporary workers, sort of agricultural workers and construction workers um, from Southeast Asia and Asia now. Mm. Um, So largely from the Philippines and Thailand are the main uh, two countries that will send these temporary workers. And these workers do not have any access to naturalization or citizenship in Israel, but their numbers are much larger just demographically than the sort of numbers of Vietnamese Israelis. So sort of walking along the streets um, in sort of contemporary uh, Israeli cities, if you see an Asian looking person, um, most likely that person is sort of not naturalized, you know, sort of temporary worker who has no access to citizenship. So I think that Vietnamese Israelis are very often interpolated, you know, as sort of perpetual foreigners, Mm. um, as people who don't belong in this country, um, who are of lower class status. Um, And I think that really, you know, sort of affects their sort of psyche and their sense of belonging within Israel. There's a lot of great ethnographic scholarship coming out right now on temporary workers all across the Middle East, usually from either Southeast Asia or South Asia. And I think this is a fertile ground for further research. Since the Vietnamese Israelis are citizens of Israel on land that a lot of Palestinians face many barriers to entering, how does that reality find recognition among Vietnamese Israelis? And uh, are there any possibilities for solidarity between these groups, even though they're so differently marginalized by Israel? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a certain personal investment in sort of trying to locate if there's there a potential for solidarity between Vietnamese, Israelis, and Palestine, given that both of these populations are marginalized by the Israeli state, albeit in different ways, um, they are sort of located at the margins of society Hmm. in many instances. Um, And I think it's very hard, and that's part of the reason that my dissertation is an interdisciplinary project, right? So one, there's a sort of ethnographic um, or sort of oral history interview component um, where I visited Israel-Palestine and sort of interviewed people and sort of saw, okay, sort of on the ground and how people articulate um, their sort of everyday lives, are they sort of articulating any potential for connections or identifications, you know, sort of across these racial divides? And in general, you know, I think that there's very little. Um, and I think part of it is because, you know, the sort of racialization in the state is so has been so successful that they don't really see commonalities between their two struggles. Wow. Um, so that, I think, again, sort of brings in the interdisciplinary component. So one way to sort of move past this is to one, look at history and to look at literature. Mm. Um, So part of my dissertation project is tracing a longer sort of pre-1975 history of 
third world revolution sort of relationships between Vietnam and Palestine um, as Vietnam was sort of going through, you know, its own independence movement and drawing rhetorical as well as material connections with the Palestinian decolonization movement. Um, so this is one sort of historical trajectory that, again, gets sort of overwritten by sort of international history narratives mm-hmm. that I want to really recuperate as a way to really contextualize, you know, contemporary Vietnamese refugees who, it must be noted, don't necessarily share the ideology of the Vietnamese revolutionaries, such as Ho Chi Minh and their sort of communist rhetoric. Right. However, I do think that there's a sort of, you know, historical and ethnic connection there with these sort of Vietnamese communities and the diaspora. So that's one sort of way to sort of contextualize contemporary possibilities for solidarity. I think the other way that I mention is literature, right? And so part of my project, too, is looking at um, the poetry of, in particular, a Vietnamese Israeli poet, Van Wing, um, who writes about her experience in Israel and sort of moments of displacement, um, but also sort of travel to different international cities, such as in Vietnam, but also in the United States and Europe, um, and sort of looking at her sort of affective displacement and sort of exile um, and trying to read that in relation to Palestinian accounts of exile by Mahmoud Darwish and Bargoti are two sort of authors that I really draw from. Um, and so is there a way that within sort of poetry that we can find, you know, sort of affective or thematic connections and maybe, you know, these things are not realized in the social realm yet. But if mm-hmm. we can sort of look at poetry um, as articulating things that we can't articulate yet, you know, in the social sphere, um, that's one way to sort of maybe say, OK, if we refer to the literary, that's one way that we can imagine different possibilities for our future. This has been wonderful, Evan. Can I also ask how it is that you chose this research project? Yeah, great. Um, As I mentioned earlier, you know, I do have a sort of personal investment in this project. Um, So I am a second generation Asian American, um, half Filipino and half Vietnamese. So my mom and grandmother were Vietnamese refugees who Mm -hmm. came to the United States uh, in 1975. Um, And so I have been very inspired by their sort of personal history and their Mm -hmm. strength. Um, And I'm very interested in sort of tracing other communities and other sort of circuits of Vietnamese refugee migration. Um, A lot of the sort of academic literature has focused on a U.S. context. Um, And that is very understandable for largely demographic and historical reasons. So most of the Vietnamese refugees did end up in the continental United States. So part of my project is to sort of look at refugees that have perhaps been overlooked. And part of this is one of the communities is in Israel-Palestine. The second sort of vector is that, you know, questions around Israel-Palestine and settler colonialism in Israel and sort of Palestinian liberation movements are very much at the forefront and very important now in this political moment. And doing this research was a way for me personally um, to sort of understand and begin to articulate my sort of investment and stakes in these very important questions. As I said, I'm very interested in sort of 
understanding if there are potentials for solidarity against, in general, groups that are differentially racialized, um, because mm-hmm. I think state racialization processes so often try to divide us. And this is my way to sort of articulate, you know, looking at history, looking at government documents, looking at literature and looking at sort of contemporary movements and moments, if there's a way that we can sort of get past or overcome these state racialization projects. Listeners might have also heard podcasts with Shira Robinson and with Yael Barda on this topic. And it's absolutely wonderful to have this slightly later historical perspective as well on race making in state formation in Israel-Palestine. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Evan. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners who want to learn more about the Vietnamese-Israeli community can view the short bibliography that Evan has provided on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com.